The Apostle Paul is in the Mamertine prison under the streets of Rome. He's awaiting his death sentence by beheading just outside the city on the Ostian Way. And as he writes, he pours out his heart to his son in the faith, Timothy. Half Greek, half Jew, young man that he met, he met in Lystra on his first missionary journey, who would become his adopted son. But more than that, he would become his confidant, his co-laborer, his soldier, and probably his best friend. And it is to him that he writes, and it is to him that he is passing the baton. You know the scripture well. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Say it with me. Preach the word in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, but you be sober, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul is a man who is dying without regrets. He's a man who is dying well. And he's able to die well because he's lived well. He has fought the good fight. He has run the race. He has finished the course. He has obeyed his own command. Entrust these truths to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The promise will not die with him. And as in his mind's eye he sees the executioner's sword, he is not afraid. Because he knows that the truth will continue on in Timothy and in others. The promise will be fulfilled. Though he may not see it, it will continue. It will happen. And what's so interesting about this goodbye is that these are not the musings of, of a man who has lonely resolve. I've done what I can do. This is the best I can do. And I guess I, I, I'm defeated. Not at all. These are the celebrations of a soldier who has fought well and is assured that the victory parade is coming. 
This is a man who is not laying down his sword, but is passing it on to the next soldier. This is a man who is dying in triumph. Don't miss that. This is not sad resolve. Though he is rotting in a rat-infested prison, his soul is very much alive. His hope is very much intact. His confidence assured that the promise will continue. No, this man is dying in triumph because he lived with a purpose. And you say, what does this have to do with our text today? Well, it has everything to do with our text today. Because this is what we see in Hebrews chapter 11. We've spent a lot of time in uh, the character of Abraham lately. And he too is a man who died in triumph. A man who died with great confidence. A man who died well. Why? Because he's a man who lived well. And that is the connection. Look at verse 13 talking about Abraham and Sarah, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear they are seeking, they are not, they are seeking a country of their own. Abraham died well. But he didn't just die well all of a sudden. He didn't just at the end of the life say, well, you know, I never really saw the promise and this kind of stunk, but, uh, you know, I might as well have a good attitude. Might as well die like a man with my boots on or sandals on or whatever. Hardly. This is a man who died well because he lived well believing in a promise that he did not receive and knew he wouldn't receive, but it was as good as done. And so that's what we want to look at today. Think of it in terms of this. If dying well is required to receive our heavenly reward, I'm in no way saying that we're saved by works, but I am saying that genuine faith perseveres to the end. And throughout Hebrews, we've seen this genuine faith draws near, holds fast, perseveres, and dies well now, we see. If that is the case, then the preacher, the author here, is seeking to encourage this first century church that has become timid, that has become fearful, that has become complacent. He is seeking to encourage them to stay the course, to die well. But he's making the connection, the only way you're going to die well and receive the reward is if you start living well now. Let me say that again. The only way you are going to die well in the future is if you start living well in the present. Timothy, the only way you're going to be able to stay the course, bear up under suffering, endure persecution, preach it week in, week out, in season, out of season, is not to start in the future and hope you die well. It's got to start now. Dying well means living well. Let me pray for us, and we'll unpack this together.
Father, if we pause just for a moment here, we want to acknowledge that this text we're about to exposit is beyond what we can do in and of ourselves. No power of positive thinking, no more motivational speech, no desire to do this apart from the power of the Holy Spirit through the instrumentality of your word is possible. And we know that only those who die well in faith and receive the reward are those who have lived well, who not only possess a genuine faith, but that genuine faith works, perseveres, bears up under, rejoices. And so, Lord, we need that. We need that like this first century Hebrew church needs it. That in a day and age where the world vies for our attention, where there's fear for security and safety, when churches are simply asking us to attend, the Christian is in danger of becoming anemic in his faith. He's in danger of planting roots here in the world. He's in danger of finding his pleasure and his passion in created things rather than the Creator. And we have bought into a lie that somehow, just because once saved, always saved, that we will die well even if we don't live well now. And Lord, it is a lie from the pit of hell. I pray that this preacher will shake us to our core this morning. That he would not only show us that this is an impossibility, but it is a wasted life to think that I will get serious about Christ sometime in the future. Oh, Father, fan the flame of our hearts, just as Paul sought to do with Timothy, and to stir his faith within him, to remind him of the promises and remind him of his calling. May we, like the early church, look back at Abraham, a man of faith, not, not perfect faith, but progressive faith. And may we mirror our lives in such a way that we put one foot in front of another, that we make decisions, and that we live and work and even play in such a way that this is not our home, but we are seeking a better country, a heavenly one, a heavenly city that you have prepared for us. Father, I pray specifically, as Israel did, for the unbelievers among us this morning, Lord. I pray that they would quit pretending like they are believers. That they would admit today that they are lost. And they are in need of a Savior, Lord. And I pray by your grace... And only by your grace would you grant faith and repentance to bow the knee before our Lord Jesus Christ, realizing that he is the only means of salvation. The preacher writing to this first century church knew that souls were on the line. And he is begging them, he is exhorting them, like a coach imploring them to quit drifting, to draw near. Because the thought that they would die well was a misnomer if they're not living well now. And so, Lord, shape our hearts this morning. Shape our thinking. Spur us on towards love and good deeds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, as the preacher continues this exposition on a practical working faith, he, he seeks to use faithful ancestors, specifically those from the Old Covenant, before the New Covenant, to point out to those who are tempted to go back, hey, Abraham was faithful. Sarah was faithful. Noah was faithful. We don't often talk about it in this day of, of success where the church has embraced so many of worldly measures of success that there is actually only one measure of spiritual success in the Bible. There is only one measure, one indicator that you need to focus on as a Christian in order to be successful. Do you know what it is? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. If you will focus on faithfulness, trusting that it is ultimately the Holy Spirit who not only enables you, but perseveres through you to be faithful, if you will focus on that, regardless of the measures of success you see in life or don't see, regardless of the objective indicators of people, of buildings, of budgets, of ministry, of likes, of whatever, you can stand before an audience of one. You can bow before an audience of one and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. This is what he's trying to get them to realize. You, you might think of it this way. It's as if the preacher is, is making a personal uh, aside, saying, look, I, I, know, I know you Hebrew church. I know you want to you wanna quit. Let's be honest. It's hard. Or at least you want to drift. You want to get some distance between you and the fire of persecution or the fire of ridicule, the mockery from your family and your friends or the actual persecution from the world. I know that you want to do that, but beware. Drifting has a destination. And if you are ashamed of Jesus Christ, this is what he's going to introduce this week. If you're ashamed of Jesus Christ, if you reject the only means that God has provided for salvation, there is no hope. If you're ashamed of Jesus Christ, either realistically or, watch this, functionally. You know what I mean by that? There's, there's not too many Christians today that are rejecting Jesus Christ overtly. I mean, there are, but for some of our common populace, people don't wake up one day and say, yeah, I don't believe this stuff anymore. I'm done. I'm ready to sign up as an atheist. But there's a, lot of whole, there's a whole lot of functional apostasy out there. Yeah, well, I used to go to church until dot, dot, dot. And then there's every legitimate excuse in the world. The latest is spiritual abuse. Well, so-and-so treated me badly at this church. That church is just full of hypocrites. And that's an excuse to walk away from our Lord Jesus Christ who gave His life for you? And yet, even the church has bought into these excuses and falls all over themselves. This preacher's not going to do it. He's going to he's coach them like they are a Division I team. And he's going to be honest. I know you want to quit. I know you want to drift, but if you are ashamed of Jesus Christ, He is the 
only lifeline for salvation. You're choosing to let go of it. As I mentioned, I don't think most Christians actually audibly think in terms of quitting their faith or converting to Judaism, which would be a direct parallel here. But if I could talk to our young people for a minute here, I do think a lot of this is going, a lot of uh, this attitude is going on. Uh, of course, of course I'm a Christian. Um, I'm just not ready to adult yet. I hear that a lot. I'm not ready to be an adult Christian yet. I want to kind of have my time with the world. I enjoy riding two horses like a circus rider. One Christianity, one with the world. Oh, I, I, I'm going to get serious. I'm going to get serious. Um, when I get married, ah, that's what I'm going to get serious about being a Christian. you got entire subdivisions in Dallas that are full of that. Complete pagan families that decide, I'm no longer going to live together, I'm going to get married. Hey, let's start going to church. Right? Or, or I'm going to get serious when I have kids because, you know, kids need, kids need church. I mean, I had church. It was a good thing. My point is this. That day in the future may never come. Secondly, even if you want to do that, your heart never will. You can't schedule repentance. You cannot schedule repentance. A heart that is enshackled to the world will not naturally release itself and follow Christ. We have to realize that this has become culturally acceptable. I really want to bring this text into the modern day. You've heard me mention, according to the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention, that the average churchgoer, the average Baptist churchgoer, in Dallas-Fort Worth is a one in five. Have you heard that? They attend church one in five Sundays. This is the buckle of the Bible belt. Look, we, we look at this, this first century church full of Hebrew Christians, and it's easy for us to say, yeah, yeah, yeah they're drifting. They're becoming complacent. It's a good thing we're not like that, right? Until you realize that drifting has become almost a recognized sport in Christianity, right? Where we all watch it happen. We all know what's going on, but no one gets on the field and does anything. No one stops the people from drifting. No one even has the conversation, because if you do, you're judging, right? I could stop the sermon right here and I could say, okay, raise your hand. How many of you have heard this from your own Christian extended family? Who are you to judge, right? You're like, did you really think I wanted to have this conversation with, with so-and-so? No one wants to have this conversation. But we pursue because we've been pursued. We give the gospel because someone gave the gospel to us. We're involved in one another's lives because someone did it for us. Ultimately, our Lord did it for us. And so, this is not just some wonderful sermon illustration about Abraham. Or, or, or it's not an admonition or an exhortation to a church 2,000 years ago. This preacher's talking to us today. And he's saying, hey, don't buy into the lie that your faith is going to be strong at death's door if it's not strong now. 
Three points I want us to learn from Abraham's ability to die well. So if I could just kind of put my professor hat on for a second. Uh, a week ago in equipping hour, we went through how to exegete a passage, how to structure it, how to look for the theme, what the, the uh, author wanted the original audience to understand, the aim, what he, he wanted them to do, and how you pull this together in the main idea of the text. And our challenge to us as a congregation is, hey, I'd love for you to spend three quiet times a week trying to break apart a text. You know, like those, like those saltine crackers that have little perforated edges. Try to take a text, break it apart, and see what is it saying. And you'll never be disappointed because it will deepen your faith the more you understand the very instrumentality that strengthens your faith. Did you catch what I just said? You will never, you, I don't ever have to worry about anyone becoming too scholastic when it comes to studying God's Word. Because the more you understand the depths of God's Word, the more the Holy Spirit uses that instrument to increase your faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. It is the Word of Christ that strengthens your faith. So I want you to be devotional, but maybe three times a week we could, we could dig a little bit deeper here. So let's take three minutes and look at this text together. 13 through 16. Not an easy one to break down, right? In fact, my own daughter came to me this week. She goes like, hey, I'm doing what you asked me to do. I don't like it. This is hard. Give me the answers. I said, come on Sunday. It's pretty bad when you have to convince your own daughter to come on Sunday, right? All right. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But then we have three things here. Watch this. But having seen, having welcomed, and having confessed. Having seen, having welcomed, having confessed. This is what drives the whole passage. All of these died in faith. That's the thrust of the passage. There are three ways they died well in faith. By living well. Think about it that way. They lived well by having seen those promises as though they were right in front of them. That means they really believed them. Number two, having welcomed them. The word is literally having embraced them. Made them their own. They're, these are mine. I understand these. God has given me these promises. And finally, having confessed that this country was not their own. This was not their home. Okay? They were just traveling through. Verses 14 through 16 then support especially that last part. That journeying through the world, trusting God for His promises without growing roots. Now, you just think about the practical applications, okay, of us living well, trusting God's Word so much that we believe what we can't see, we embrace what we can't touch, and we are going through this world heading towards our heavenly city. You would bankrupt the pharmaceutical interest, uh, industry in, in anxiety and depression meds right off the bat. Because people would be like, hey, it's all going to burn anyway. Hey, God's in control. Hey, this is not my home. You see what I'm saying? What is this first century church going through? Threatening my property. Threatening my personhood. Threatening my reputation. They would say, hey, it doesn't make a difference. Because I can see, embrace the promises, and this is not my home. Okay? So, 
let's just keep it simple. Let's combine the first two. Genuine faith, these are our two points, dies well by living well. Number one, seeking and embracing without receiving. Seeking and embracing without receiving. And number two, seeking, not settling. Seeing and embracing without receiving, seeking, not settling. So let's go back and see how Abraham did it. Because now I'm interested. I'm like, okay, if Abraham, who had no congregation to encourage him, had no other believers around, was called by God and given a promise, and had to be faithful for a long time, and live well in order to die well, I kind of want to know how he did it, right? Maybe by God's grace, I've got 25, 30 years left. Abraham, teach me. Can we, if he was here, wouldn't we like, you know, have him do a TED talk, right? Can't you see Abraham doing it? Would he use PowerPoint? I think he would use PowerPoint, right? Let me tell you how I died well by living well. Well, let's see if we can't find out. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 25. And not many people preach a sermon on the death of Abraham. Unless they just happen to be going through Genesis, and they say, well, Metro Bible's not going to let me skip that chapter, so I might as well preach it. Because you're going to look at this and say, uh, yeah, is this just a transfer of information? What's, what's the point of this? And the first verse... Is, is kind of a Debbie Downer, you know? It's like we're, we're watching Genesis, this promise of land, seed, and blessing, the ups and downs of Abraham's faith. We get to chapter 25, look at verse 1. Sarah's died, now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Man, I read that like, oh man! You know, it, it's like seeing a sequel of a movie and they just ruined the first one because... He, what happened to Princess Sarah? Well, I know she died. Then he should have just not ever remarried, right? You know, but I'm missing the point. There's a lot going on in this chapter. Abraham marries Keturah after Sarah's death, but here's the interesting thing. The text make it makes it clear that she will not receive the same status as his princess. In fact, 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32 refers to her as a concubine. She's probably not as low as Hagar was, but, but she is definitely not his wife of the inheritance. And I'll explain that in a minute. According to the text, it appears that he was married for another 35 to 38 years. And in verses 2 through 4, we see her six boys and their children... And you're saying, well, why is this here? Well, re again, remember, who's reading this? These are Israelites coming out of Egypt in the wilderness. And they're going to run into people groups that are going to claim Abraham as their father. So what we see here is all these desert nations that claim their lineage from Abraham. In fact, I don't know if you realize this, but, but Arabs today claimed to be the legitimate child of Abraham. And they would say Isaac is the illegitimate child. 
I remember the first time I heard this, I was doing business with uh, some Egyptians back in the early 90s, and we're having uh, a meal in Houston and talking about things, and I thought, well, they're Muslim, I'm a Christian, let's give this a shot. I'm like 22 years old. I'm going to try to witness to them by conversation, right? They spent the next hour trying to convince me that, oh, no, 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 you misunderstand it. This is a corrupted text here, the Bible. Ishmael is the legitimate son, the one of the inheritance. Isaac, well, he's the illegitimate one. And they really believe it. But this was written to show the Israelites that all of these desert nations around them, while they may claim Abraham as their father, they are not children of the promise. It is Israel, the 12 tribes, whom God redeemed out of Egypt and kept His promise from Genesis 12, 15, 17, land, seed, and blessing that they haven't seen yet. He is the God, and Abraham is their father. As Alan Ross says, only one line continued the covenant. Now, here's where it comes into play. The seeing and embracing without receiving. Look at verse 5. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. He's gracious. He's kind. He fulfills his duty, but he sends him away. Why does he do this? He's going to protect the promise. He's going to protect the promise. God's given him a promise. He sees it as though it's in front of him. He embraces it, even though he can't touch it. It hasn't happened yet, but he's like, I'm going to protect the promise, God's word. And so he sends them away. There needs to be no confusion who the legitimate heir is. He's living well. Watch it continue. Verse 9 tells us that he dies. Ishmael comes back for the wake and the funeral. What must that have been like? Isaac is the heir. They're having the ceremony at the cave of Machpelah. Ishmael comes back to pay his respects. I imagine that the will was read. I, Abraham, formerly of Ur the Chaldees, know now of the promised land of Canaan, which I don't yet own, being of sound mind and body, do hereby bequeath all that I own to my only son, Isaac. I bet there's lots of clearing of throats, <clears throat> uncomfortability there. Someone was just cut out of the entire will. That was a lead balloon, right? Well, actually, it wasn't. You see, Ishmael knew it. Dad had already lived the promise. Dad had been living the promise. Dad had been telling everyone, Isaac is the promised son. Isaac is the, the deposit, the seed. I may not be able to see how I'm a great nation yet, I certainly don't have a deed to this land yet. And I certainly haven't seen how all the nations of the world will be blessed. But you know what? I believe it. And Isaac, he's the down payment. I love what one theologian says. 
he explains that they were sent away, meaning all the other sons, in order that salvation history might continue and that one day those who were outside the promise, that would be us, would partake of the promise because the promise was protected until it could be fulfilled. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Abraham protected the promise because he believed it, he saw it, he embraced it, and then one day God had a plan. When what? The Jews killed their Messiah. And a hardening happened until the fullness of the Gentiles were then grafted in. Isn't that amazing? So Abraham protected it, though he would not realize it. Like Paul, he fought the good fight. He finished the race. And yet he didn't see the promise fulfilled. But that's the point. He was only able to die well because he lived well. You say, well, then how does that really apply to, to the Hebrew church here? Or how does it apply to us, Metro Bible? Well, what promises were made under the new covenant? We're not promised land, seed, and blessing, right? But remember from last week, our promises are promises of salvation. I think of what set it all in motion when Christ is having a conversation with Peter. And Christ answers, And I also say to you that you are Peter, Matthew 16, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. God has promised that he will build his church. He has left us here as ambassadors to proclaim the truth, to help people know Jesus Christ, grow to be like him, bring them in the church, baptize them, fellowship with them, have them do the same. And yet, are there periods in history where it looks like this promise is not being fulfilled? Are there periods in history, are there periods in our life where it looks like the gates of Hades are starting to close? Kind of like those automatic gates that you're like, ah, it's going to hit my car, right? And there's nothing you could do. That's what it feels like. It was the same for Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy's in Ephesus. Paul, you planted this church. You were a popular guy, but since you left, this church doesn't respect me much. I've even got elders who aren't teaching rightly. I'm beat up. I'm tired. I know you've told me. I know I've read Matthew that Christ will build his church, and I want to believe it, but, but I'm, I'm having a hard time being faithful. Paul says, you stay the course. I haven't seen it either, but it will happen. I believe the promise. See it, Timothy. Embrace it, Timothy. Realize it will be fulfilled. But even if you never see it, that's okay. Because this is not our home. That's when he tells him specifically, 2 Tim 2, 2. These things which you've heard from me entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Parentheses, when you die. Right? That day when Paul's head rolled 
Timothy caught that baton. That day when Abraham was buried in the cave of Machpelah, Isaac caught that baton and he ran. Isaac would never see the promise. Jacob would never see the promise. Well, look at our second point. Seeking, not settling. Look at verse 7. These are the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. As I mentioned earlier, he's dying with nothing but a photo album. A photo album of the promise. Oh, look at that. There's, there's a picture of, of baby Isaac. I don't see a nation yet, but I see Isaac. Oh, there's a, there's a picture of my farm, my land that has the cave of Machpelah in it. It's not a very big farm. It's not Israel yet, but you know what? That's a deposit right there. And I trust that God will complete that which He has begun. So much so that throughout his life, he didn't amass property. He didn't plant roots. He didn't fraternize with the Canaanites. He didn't let his kid marry one of them. Remember what he said to Eleazar? You go back to the homeland and you find my son a wife. Would you dare pick out a woman from around here? Because I believe in the promise. And this is not our home yet. Do we see deposits in a promise that we may not realize? Do we see deposits even in one another as Christ is building His church? I look out there, this, we're not even half filling this gym. But I want to die well, and if I want to die well, I better start living well now. You know, it was Richard Baxter of Kitty Minster in England who wrote the book, The Reformed Pastor. Richard Baxter would catechize. He would go to visit each one of his churches, uh, the, the family in, each, in his church a year, and he would spend hours with them and teach them the Word of God. He would make sure everyone was touched. He was passionate about discipleship. And it was Whitfield who was visiting that town a hundred years later and he said, this church of Richard Baxter, who's been long dead, has a sweet smell of the old man. His work here continues on. His fragrance permeates the place. How is that possible? Is it because he was such a great preacher? No. Is it because he was some superhuman man? No. Because he was faithful to the promise that Christ would build His church, and all He could do with the tools He had was disciple and pastor those in His care. The same is with us. We may never see the success the world claims is important, but faithfulness, believing in the promise, embracing it, and saying, you know what? We're not going to plant roots because this is not our home. We're headed towards a heavenly one. I want you to notice this phrase. Look at verse 8. Abraham breathed his last 
and died at a ripe old age, an old man, and what does your version say? Satisfied. Satisfied with life. It literally just says, and satisfied. There's no with life there. And he was gathered to his people. You know, the hot thing now is legacy. Man, you got to make sure you're working on your legacy. That's the important thing. Young folks have heard that. Legacy, yes, just work on our legacy. Like you're going to be around to enjoy your legacy. Let me tell you the legacy we want, believing in a promise that we may not be able to see. Legacy we want is one day when we get to heaven for someone to say, the Lord used you to bring me to Christ. The Lord used you to strengthen my faith. Thank you and praise the Lord. That's the legacy we want. Because everything else, your career, your bank account, your social status, even your good looks, okay, are all going to disappear. They're all going to be gone. And he was gathered to his people. This is not he was buried with the rest of his relatives in the family sepulcher. No, 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 no. You see, Abraham understands there was an afterlife. This means Abraham was gathered to his people in his country. What, what did Christ say? Abraham longed for the day to see my incarnation. Yahweh, we sang it this morning, in the wilderness, from the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham. No, no, no. A Abraham's death was not a cessation of life. It was a speed bump to getting home. Now, there's one more verse here. The brothers bury him next to his father, next to their mother, sorry. Princess Sarah, and in verse 11 it says, And it came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. Now, it's easy to overlook that, but, but don't blessed his son Isaac. What, what does that tell you? The promise continues. Okay? The promise, and there's more here. And Isaac lived by Berlahai Roy. Berlahai Roy. Now, I know I got five of my seminary students out there are taking OT1, Old Testament 1. They're reading through Genesis right now. Berlahai Roy. You, you recognize that. You may not know where, but you recognize that. Berlahai Roy was a very special place that's mentioned over and over. It, it, it's, it's where Isaac was waiting for his beloved bride, Rebekah, to come. It's where Hagar and Ishmael are weeping and scared and lost, and God visits her. Bir Lahai Roy literally means the living one who sees me. Bir Lahai Roy. It's a place of desperate dependence. It's a place of prayer. Abraham dies, the promise has not arrived, but he sees it, he embraces it, and he's not planting roots because he's got a better country. Isaac catches that baton, and he pitches his tent in Beer Lahai Roy, the one who sees me, the one who sees me. He sees the promise. He embraces the promise. 
because the one who sees me, God, has given the promise. I'm just going to hang out here in Bir Lahai Roy. And I may never see the promise, but guess what? God sees me, and I'm being faithful. And I see the promise, even though I may not touch it. So how do we, Metro Bible, how do we die well? By learning to live well. Turn back with me, I want to finish with this. Turn back with me to chapter 11, verse 16. It's one thing to understand that in order for us to be faithful to the end, we must start to be faithful now. It helps to understand how Abraham, how Paul was able to do it. I want to press us and close with this. I want to know why. I want to know why. This text gives us a clue. Look at verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared, prepared a city for them. Over and over again, we see this, this explanation in 14 through 16 of this is not their home. They were seeking a better country. They were seeking a heavenly one. Okay? Basically saying this is why they were able to do it. If we've seen how, I want to leave us with why. Why are we able to live well in order that we die well? You know, George Strait, who, by the way, is the best country music singer ever of all time, without a doubt, has an old song. There's a difference between living and living well. Okay? It's prophetic. There's a difference between living and living well. There's a difference between existing, living, going through the motions, letting the things of the world satisfy you, and living well, living for beyond yourself, living for a better country, okay? Living in light of eternity. This is, how, this is why they were able to do it. So I start out with Paul. Let me finish with Paul. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul's whole driving force for living. That I may know him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Why am I able to live well now? Why am I able to do the hard things when I can't see them? When I may never realize the promise? Because I'm living for the future, that I may know Jesus Christ, the fellowship of His sufferings, in order that I may attain to what? A heavenly city, the re resurrection of the dead. This is why we were able to do this. What, what does that mean? Paul lived his life in such a way that his whole mantra for living is that I am going through this life. I want to know Jesus better. I want to live like Jesus in order that one day I will be like Jesus and I want to take as many people with me as I can. Our promise given to us, given to Peter, is that Christ will build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We've been left as ambassadors to proclaim the good news. What drives us is that this is not our home. We're just passing through. 
Christ will build His church, but He's chosen to do it through us. And so like Paul, our living well means living in light of eternity and actually doing that which we are called to do. Helping people know Jesus Christ, grow to be like Him. KG squared. That's why you're going to remember it. You won't forget it. It's cheesy, but it'll help you. Okay? Know and grow and help others do the same. Know Jesus Christ, grow to be like Him, and help others do the same. Timothy, entrust these truths to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Die well. We can do this. And it says, when we do this, God is not ashamed to be called our God. Now, the flip side of that is that He could be ashamed to be called our God if we are drifting, right? Do you know what Abraham was called by James, who wrote the epistle on genuine faith working? Abraham was called a friend of God. That right there seals it. If I want to die well, I need to start living well. Those who live well, live in light of the promise, live for the future, and live to please God. And God is not ashamed to be called their God. And like Abraham, could even be called a friend of God. Amen? Because we are no longer enemies, but I call you my friends.